0: guys ever had a conversation with someone and you're kind of wondering what planet they're on It, it seems like whatever they're saying is like completely the opposite of reality maybe this never happens here to me by the way I just want I just want to be very very clear parents perhaps you can relate to this when we talk with our children like why on earth did you just do what you just did and then they give you an explanation, and that really doesn't make any sense at all. We have those people at work, those coworkers, maybe, that were just like, What is it like on your planet? Why are you the way that you are? We all run into people that are so far off from reality sometimes that it's hard to find common ground on a theological note. This is what theologians call the noetic effects of sin in a lot of ways. That sin not only is something we do, sin is something that is a curse on our very thoughts and reasoning and all of that. And it warps the way that we think. It distorts our worldview, even to the point of being able to look around creation and all of its beauty and all of its power and all of its organization and all of its complexity and say, eh. This just happened through time and random chance acting on matter. It's impossible when we think about it. How do you think God looks at us who willingly close our eyes to his existence and live our lives in complete disregard towards him? And Paul is going to tell us all about that today. So if you're not there already, head over to Romans 1. We are... Boldly pressing on with our series in Romans, last week on Easter, we dug into the power of the gospel of God, both for salvation and the power of his righteousness for life. Both of these reasons, church, reminded us that we have no reason to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for those who have been made righteous in Christ, we are continue to live, or we are to continue to live by faith. As we have been saying, the book of Romans is one big, long, deep dive into the gospel. It is an exposition of the gospel. When we say the gospel, we mean God's plan to save sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. But why do we need the gospel? What is it that we need to be saved from again? And this week, Paul is going to tell us in detail. Look again at Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. For... For, Meaning, because. So another purpose clause. If, you're, if you wanted to circle all of those from uh, verse 16 all the way through, you're going to find a lot of them. Paul kind of keeps digging himself deeper and deeper into his reasoning here. He continues to build his case as to why the gospel is the power of God for salvation and why we need it. Right? Why is Paul eager to get to Rome to preach the gospel because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why not? Because it's the power of God for salvation and righteousness for faith. Well, why do we need that? Why do we need salvation and righteousness? That's the essence of what Paul answers this week. Look at our text again. Why do we need salvation and righteousness? Well, because the wrath of God is here. The wrath of God is revealed. From heaven against all unrighteousness. And if you back up to verse 17, it says the righteousness, is, righteousness of God is revealed. And it's revealed in the gospel. And why? Because there's unrighteousness. So 17 and 18 complement each other. It's, it's the explanation once again. Now God's wrath is not among the top 10 preaching topics that most preachers talk about on a Sunday morning. It's not really going to pack people into the pews. It's not very seeker-friendly. Most people steer clear of talking about God's wrath and instead talk about His love or His grace or His mercy. And the only problem with that is the Bible itself. Theologian A.W. Pink notes that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to His love and tenderness. God cannot just look the other way in the face of ungodliness and unrighteousness. His holiness demands that he deals with sin, right? And there's dangers on on each side of the road. There's ditches on each side of the road. We cannot talk about God's wrath and just talk about all about God's love and grace. He loves everybody, forgives everybody. Or on the other side, that's all we can talk about is God's wrath. You're going to hell, you're going to burn forever, and we never, ever hear about God's love or grace. So the balance, of course, is another thing that the Bible holds in tension and we have to hold both of them. God is love, but he also is, has a holy wrath for sin. We need both. God cannot look the other way in sin. Let's be clear, though. God's holy wrath is not a divine temper tantrum. This is not just the, the capricious, he's angry, so he's going to blow his top, and he's going to then just a fit of rage at people. No, no. God's wrath is his settled disposition against sin. It is a holy, perfect, righteous wrath. One dictionary defines the term this way. It's the free, subjective, and holy response of God to sin and to the evil and wickedness exhibited by creatures in opposition to God. This is not the wrath that we feel, again, maybe when our child is doing something wrong or when somebody cuts us off. and That's anger. Much different than wrath. Wrath is a, a settled perspective that God has from eternity all the way through Judgment Day against sin itself. Right? That's the real hard truth. God is perfectly holy. His wrath is revealed because of our unrighteousness and ungodliness. We see this every single day. God's wrath being revealed. This is actually in the present tense here. God's wrath is being revealed revealed right now it's an ongoing thing we see it revealed every day the more people choose sin the more the consequences of God's wrath for that sin we see and become visible it's happening now and it will happen in the future at judgment day this is not only judgment day the wrath isn't just the end of the world when Jesus comes back it's every day how why good questions let's keep going let's read that again Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to them for his invisible attributes. Two things, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. I could spend a whole sermon just on these verses and I thought about it. Then again, I didn't want to be in Romans for the next 11 years. We have God's wrath here and now in the present and one day in judgment day because of ungodliness and unrighteousness. In other words, sin. God's wrath exists now and it will exist in the future because of sin. And sin is this, people suppressing the truth. So Paul says, people suppressing the truth. To suppress means to push down, to disregard, to restrain, to hinder. And so what truth are they suppressing? The answer is that we just have to look at verse 19 because he drops another purpose clause. For, this is why. For, what can be known about God is plain. People suppress, they push down, they restrain the truth that they actually, really, totally know that God exists. Everybody knows that. And in sin, we ignore it. We push it down. It says, what can be known about God, right? That's not saying we can know everything about God because we can't know everything about God. Otherwise, that would make us God and we're not God. But the text is clear. It says, what we can know about God, namely and particularly, that God exists is completely and totally clear. It's completely and totally plain. Why? Another four is coming. For God has revealed it to them. He's shown every single human being that he exists, and it's crystal clear. And verse 20 tells us how. Why? Well, here comes another four. For his invisible attributes, like the things that God is. And those two things Paul names as his eternal power and divine nature, are clearly seen in creation, in the things that God has made. So much so that Paul drops this crazy line at the end of verse 20. He says, So they are without excuse. Literally, in the Greek, without an apologetic, without a defense. There's no defense. No one on the face of this earth who has ever lived will be able to legitimately stand before God on judgment day and say wow, you really did exist. I I didn't see enough evidence. I didn't think you were there. There's no excuse. God says, all you have to do to know that I'm here is walk outside. Look around. You all think this happened by accident? You all think this earth runs by accident? I'm here, and I've revealed myself in creation. Now, the danger is that we fall off on the other side and get into pantheism, which is God is creation, and we worship rocks and dirts and worms and things like that. that. No, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. God is not creation, but God reveals his presence, right? His divine attributes, his power, and his, div- his divinity through creation. A very, very important thing to note that, right? Ever since the world began, we worship. People worship things in creation. The sun god, the moon god, all that stuff. No. God is not creation. But God reveals himself in creation plainly, clearly, so much so that nobody has an excuse. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. And we piece this all together. God has wrath for sin because of unrighteousness and ungodliness. That sin is primarily disregarding God, which is crazy because he's made his presence completely clear. We see it in his power and divinity, completely clear in creation all around us, so that no one has an excuse not to believe in God. So in other words, if you're not believing in God, you're choosing to ignore him. Because deep down in your heart, you know he's there. He's put that in us. Ignoring God is not a trivial matter. He is the rightful creator and king over all his creation, including us. And what have we done? Completely disregarded him. Completely pushed him out. Completely. Therefore, his wrath is completely and totally legit. It is completely and totally deserved. To put it another way, when we live our lives as if God did exist, we're under his wrath and we deserve it. And let's say maybe the first point this way then, if we pull all these pieces together. God's wrath exists because we have sinfully disregarded his obvious existence. God's wrath exists because we have sinfully disregarded his obvious existence. And I hope you're getting the implications of this text, because there's a ton of them. And maybe two things in application I want to pull out. First, every single human being on the face of this earth knows that God exists. The Psalms famously speak of this creation, screaming, and I would have read this passage this morning for the Old Testament reading, but I went and realized that we have already read this like three times before, so. We read Psalm 50 instead. But now I'm going to read Psalm 19. Psalm 19:1 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims this handiwork. Day to day they pour out speech, and night to night they reveal knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. The voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. And he has set a tent for the sun. Right? He says, the voice goes everywhere. People hear it everywhere. The whole earth, they get it. They hear the voice. Look up. The heavens declare the glory of God. Calvin famously called this the sensus divinitatis, or translated in English from the Latin, a sense of divinity that is inscribed on every human heart. Spurgeon said, there's a gospel in the sea. There's a gospel in the heavens, in the stars, in the sun. And if people will not read it, they are guilty. Again, this is the theological business of general revelation. God reveals himself in creation. We know God exists because we see creation, and we know that there's a God. General revelation. That's much different than special revelation, which is this, which is how we need to be saved from this God. We need that. But to know that God exists, all you need to know is to walk outside. You look around in his creation. We see God's power in creation in thunderstorms, in hurricanes, in tornadoes, with the wildfire in West Milford that suddenly almost burned 1000 acres. It's craziness. And then the power of the ocean, the beauty of the sunrise, and the life of new spring. I remember being a kid and like not caring when like spring started. You just you don't know. But now like every spring, isn't it amazing just like the earth comes back to life? It's like how does that happen? Every single year, everything gets greener. The stupid yellow jackets come out. All the other things, like bugs just appear out of nowhere. Who told them it was time to do that? Carpenter bees as well. They're all over the place. We see it. Every single season, right? Makes his existence obvious. Everything in creation is perfectly fine-tuned to sustain life. Our earth hangs in perfect orbit. We have just the right amount of oxygen to survive. The argument from design, if you will, right? Everything that is designed, whatever, look around chairs, watches, eyeglasses, whatever. Everything that was designed has a designer. The earth is obviously designed, so therefore, the earth has a designer. And it's not time and chance acting on matter, it's God Himself. So the first application is quite simply are you accepting this clear truth that God exists or are you disregarding it? If you're accepting this then church, are you living like it? Are you living like God exists? If you disregard it if you don't believe God exists first of all thank you, thank you, thank you for coming really love that you're here I hope that you you seriously think about this but that leads us to our second application if you disregard it There's a reason for it, and Paul tells us that. There's a reason why you're suppressing the truth of God's obvious existence. He says you're suppressing the truth by, in, your unrighteousness. If someone is an atheist, most of the time they will say that they hold that there's not enough evidence for God. But if you push on that just a little bit, and you say, okay, if I could give you all of the evidence that you ever could possibly need would you believe? And if they're an honest atheist, they will say no. Because that's the only consistent answer. Right? Why? Because they don't want to believe. There's no evidence in the world. If you are convinced that there's no God, then there's no evidence in the world that will change your mind. Because the denial of God's existence is not based on evidence. They don't want him to exist. Because then they have to live their life in his submission. One pastor really recently said, atheism really isn't an intellectual objection, it's a moral one. Meaning if you admit God's, God exists, then you have to submit to him. And that is actually the crux of the issue. right? You know he exists, come on, look around. You just don't want to submit to him as God and King. And your sin causes you to suppress that truth. James Spiegel, in his helpful little book, The Making of an Atheist, puts it this way. Atheism is not the result of an objective assessment of evidence, but of stubborn disobedience. It does not arise from careful application of reason, but from willful rebellion. Atheism is the suppression of truth by wickedness, straight out of our passage. The cognitive consequence of immorality, in short, sin is the mother of unbelief right out of our passage they suppress the truth that God exists by their unrighteousness that's where it comes from and the more you suppress the truth the more that you push it down the more that you try and convince yourself that God doesn't exist that causes all kinds of warping in your mind and in your heart and in your worldview it becomes deeper and deeper embedded in your thoughts and this has serious consequences in our life now and the life to come. And that's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, see how he says it? Like just matter of fact. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Again, did you catch that? Four. There's another four. Because they knew God. Like fact, everyone knows that God exists. And they are not submitting to him. How? By not honoring him as God. They're not submitting to him as God. They're not giving thanks to him as God. Once again, if God is truly there and he's sovereign and he's almighty and he's king and he's creator, he deserves to be honored as such. If that's who God is... If he really is the king and creator of all things, and he really is sovereign over all things, then you better be worshiping this God of all things in that way. So not only are we stubbornly refusing to admit that he exists, neither are we worshiping him as he deserves to be. And secondly, we're not expressing thankfulness to him for giving us everything we have. One atheist friend of mine likes to post all sorts of nonsense on Facebook, We have some interesting exchanges, and one of them is rejecting that God deserves credit for anything. If anything goes right in his life, he praises himself, and he says, there's no reason to thank God, because God didn't do this. I did it, right? You're failing to give thanks to the God who gave you the ability to do it, right? Everything that we have is from God. It's a, it's a stretch of an, of an analogy here because we don't have an earthly king, but use your imagination, right? If we did have a king who not only then would deserve our honor and respect as king, but he also provides every single thing that we have, our homes, our security, our food, our protection from enemy armies, right? And then we just ignore his existence. We refuse to bow to him and we think we did everything ourselves. But all the while, we are in his kingdom. And he did everything. It would be ridiculous, right? Now multiply that by a million, billion, trillion. And imagine God created us. Gave us life. We refuse to believe he exists and we rail against him. Breathing all the while, all the while, breathing the very air that he supplies us. We're railing against our creator This might be a stretch and I'm dating myself here, but to borrow and adapt a line from the movie, A Few Good Men, God doesn't have the time nor inclination to explain himself to a people who rise and sleep under the banner of freedom that he provides and then questions the very manner in which he provides it. That's what we're doing. Everything we have is from him. Once we do that, once we reject God and fail to submit to him as such and fail to give him thanks, that has serious consequences. And maybe I'll say the second point this way. God's wrath is seen in the consequences of disregarding him. God's wrath is seen in the consequences of disregarding him. Poor Paul points out four sinful consequences that we see for God's wrath and from disregarding him. But before, I just want to say one thing. This might be a good of pl- a place of any as to respond to a common atheist objection here that says something like this. Oh, poor God. Poor, uh, self-obsessed God. His people, he created his people, and they didn't worship him. So he got his feelings hurt. And so now he's going to send everybody to hell because they didn't love him. You'll hear that for real. Right? What, what a complete distortion of who God is. This argument is so far, again, from the spiritual and biblical reality, it's nonsense to humanize God in such a demeaning way. And it only proves what Paul is saying here. That objection is going to be answered in these four points that Paul makes. And so if we look at our passage again, the first consequence, rejecting God's existence, creates empty reasoning, right? Look at verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile, empty, worthless in their thinking, in their reasoning. Rejecting God, it creates empty reasoning, meaning their worldview is senseless, baseless, twisted. It's warped, practically useless because it's lost its center. Again, you ever wonder why people think the way they do? Because they've become futile in their thinking because they're pushing God out of their life. And they're suffering the consequences of it. Why do they come to the conclusions that they do? Why do they look at life the way they do? Their thinking has become warped. A second consequence in our passage of rejecting God is darkened hearts. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. A human heart that rejects God gets increasingly darker, increasingly more sinful, increasingly more maybe depressed, isolated, increasingly more foolish. The metaphor is, is easy to understand, right? In the darkness, we don't see as well. When you come to Christ, right, you see, you see the light, like the old song said. That's the point. We used to walk in spiritual darkness. Now scales have been lifted from our eyes, and we see, we see the light. Otherwise, you walk in darkness. What happens when you walk in darkness? You step on everything that you forgot to pick up before you went to bed. It's bad, right? Once you come to faith in Christ, you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, where you understand you can see the light bulb goes on, so to speak. A third consequence of rejecting God in our passage, look in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Professing a wisdom that is actually foolishness. Our hearts, right? Our hearts are not the muscle that, well, it is. They're more, it's more than the muscle that pumps blood through your whole body. Heart, scripturally speaking, is the center of who we are. It's our inner person. It's our inner, inner self. It's our core essence, and that has become foolish. Psalm 14.1 says simply, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's a funny thing, though. Some of the, the modern atheists, right, they're brilliant people. I mean, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Stephen Hawking, just to name a few, they're brilliant people. They're just out of their lane. They're brilliant in what they're doing, but once they start talking about spirituality and God and other things, they're fools. And it's like, it it boggles the mind. Even if you aren't going to be a full-blown atheist, if you're going to be an agnostic or a humanist or a materialist, right? Maybe those who are more spiritual. I'm not religious. I'm more spiritual. Unfortunately, they fall into the category of a darkened mind. Calvin holding nothing back, puts it this way. They measure him by their own carnal stupidity. Neglecting solid inquiry, they fly off to indulge their curiosity in vain speculation. Hence, they do not conceive of him in the character which he has manifested, but imagine him to be whatever their own rashness has devised. The God of your own understanding, perhaps. The God who you make him into. If you won't submit to the God of the Bible, you're going to make him into something else of your own invention. That's not what we're talking about here. That's foolishness. Your wisdom has become foolishness. Fourth consequence is warped worship. Look at verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Don't let that blow by you. Right? The glory of the immortal God for pictures, for images, for whatever resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Not sure why ESV continues to persist in creeping things. It's just weird. It's reptiles. That's what they are. First century Rome, this was an actual thing. As as people had a pantheon of gods, including gods in their own homes. They had household gods. And I have a picture of uh, something from Pompeii, a little... Uh, Up top, we have people that are pouring wine into these strange buckets. I'm not sure why they're pouring it like that, but that's pretty cool. And they are the gods that protect. They are the sons of Mercury that protect the home, right? Images resembling humans. And then, of course, down there, we have snakes. We have serpents. We have reptiles, right? This is actually happening in Rome in the first century. Snakes who supposedly, for some reason, brought good fortune, and many of you hate snakes and can't understand how that would ever happen. But these are what people worshipped amongst, amongst the pantheon of gods in Rome. Chesterton, Chesterton famously said, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We will worship anything. Our hearts are created worshipers. We can't just turn that off. Be like, oh, okay, I'm just not going to worship. That's not the way it works. God created our hearts to worship. So we will worship something. If it's not the eternal, immortal God, we will worship anything. Sex, money, power, influence, status, pictures on your walls of snakes, the sun, the moon, whatever it is, we will worship something. We will worship anything. It's a good thing that this isn't happening in 2023 America, right? It doesn't exist today. One could summarize that we live in a culture of empty reasoning, darkened hearts, foolishness, and warped worship. And it's all around us. It's the truth of Romans 1 coming to light right before our eyes every single day. And don't really kid yourself. This isn't just a new problem, right? This is since 50 AD or whenever Paul wrote this. It's been happening all along. But God Not only being just, he's also merciful, right? His wrath is designed to stop us in our tracks. These consequences should actually stop us in our tracks. Hopefully, we see the consequences of our sin and we turn back to him. He allows these consequences to discipline us, to judge us in hopes that we might repent and once again, honor him as God. But that's not always the case. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Explanation here, right? Paul's used the word for, meaning because a lot of times in this passage and a lot of times last week, but now we have a giant therefore that's been dropped in here. This is where he's going to tie all this together and set the foundation for what comes next next week, which is this is kind of intertwined with next week, and I had to cut it off somewhere. And I was thinking about stopping at 23, but then I was thinking about taking the whole thing, and that's just not possible. So we compromised with, I compromised with myself, I guess, and we're stopping at 25. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity." Meaning God said, you want sin so bad, you want me out of your life so bad, fine. Have at it. Do your thing. Knock yourself out. See how that works for you. Parents, maybe we've done this with kids. Okay, go ahead. See how that works out for you. Right? You want to eat that pound of chocolate? Sure. See how sick you're going to be. You want to touch the stove? It's going to be hot. Right? Sometimes that's what, that's what we, do. we do. That's what God does. He, he says, okay, fine. Do it. See how that works for you. He says, gave them up," meaning delivered them up." The same word in Greek that is used in the New Testament gospels when we're talking about Judas giving up Jesus. He let, the, he let it go. He delivered it over, delivered them over to their sin. Paul will say it not once, not twice, but three times. 24, 26 and 28. God literally gives them up to their own desires. And says, "You think that will satisfy you? Go ahead it's not going to but go ahead as by that's why it's either going to do one of two things it's either going to harden your heart continue to harden your heart to god or it will cause you to drop to your knees and repent and believe that's what the consequences of sin and god's judgment should do to us sometimes it takes years for our heavenly father to get our attention as he lets us walk through these consequences of our sin, of rejecting him time and time again, beating our head against the wall, until finally we turn in repentance. And hopefully we do. But for others who refuse to repent, the calluses just grow grow thicker over their hearts. Ephesians 4.19 comes to mind. It says, they have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity wonder why people do the things they do because they've been rejecting God for years and years and years and the calluses grow deeper and thicker and they get literally, spiritually, more dumb and they continue to make bad choices. If you are starting to feel a a sexual connotation here, you are right. Of course, what we just read in Ephesians said it blatantly with sensuality but in Romans, in our passage, verse 24, the word for impurity usually means sexual impurity. And that's where we're headed next week, because that, Paul says, is going to be the ultimate example of what this outgrowth of sin and deformity and and twistedness is going to look like. It's going to come through in our sexuality, and we'll see that next week with homosexuality. This is God's discipline and God's judgment, and it's made to make us repent. But for some, it causes a further hardening. I'll say the third point this way. God's wrath is seen in God's judgment. God's wrath is seen in God's judgment. And if you're one of those people who come in here, go to the website and copy down all of the notes and put them in your notebook, you just got busted because I changed it. It used to be discipline. Now it's judgment. So keep that in mind, all you people who copy the answers from the website. I bid you a hearty, neener, 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 okay? (laughs) This is the risk that you take. Stealing from a future sermon in Romans 2. <laughs> God says it this way. In Romans 2, verses 4 and 5. Are you do, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He says, you just think we somehow, we sin and we think that we're going to be able to keep sinning and get away with that. But eventually it's, we're going to be judged. And so God's kindness and let in withholding judgment, Paul says, we operate under that and we get deluded and think, okay, this is the way it's going to be. Maybe he doesn't care about sin. No, he definitely cares about sin. He's not turning you into a smoldering pile of dust right now because he's merciful And you will meet consequence after consequence after consequence in order to get your attention and hopefully turn and repent. That's what God is doing here. Consequences for sin are designed to get our attention. And sometimes God lets us have exactly what we think we want until it backfires in our face. One theologian says it this way, God's wrath is now visible in his handing over of human beings to their chosen way of sin and all of its consequences in other words sin makes us miserable and it should sometimes in like pastoral counseling situations people come in and they're miserable they're depressed they're anxious they're not sleeping and they're walking in the midst of crazy sin and i'm like you should be miserable that's what god's telling you this is not the way to go Not that if we turn the corner, you know, puppies and unicorns and roses will happen, you know, and grow everywhere. But generally, if we do things the way God calls us to, our life is going to go better than if we don't. But if you want to fight God at every single turn, see how that works out for you. It's not going to be pleasant. I can recall all the years I stiff-armed God. And in my being, I was miserable. Till I finally turned and repented. Parents, again, this is the tactic we use sometimes with our children. You see how that works out for you. And sometimes if you're parents of adult children, right, where we can't exactly lock them in their room and give them a spanking anymore, we have to guide and we have to say and we have to counsel. And sometimes we just have to say, I don't think, I don't think you're on the right track. It's, I think this is going to end badly. But see how that works out for you. You have to see. The problem is, instead of learning our lesson, we keep going back to our sin and we don't learn our lesson. When we turn to substances or medication or or food or sexual immorality thinking it will satisfy us and it never does, somehow we get temporary amnesia and then go right back to those things thinking that it'll be different this time. And more negative consequences and more negative consequences and God's saying, what are you doing? Turn to me. This is my judgment You're seeing my wrath in this. You don't want my full wrath. Sin cannot satisfy. It's impossible. It looks like it will, but it cannot. It makes no sense. The the prophet Jeremiah talks about how ridiculous this is in Jeremiah chapter 2. Talking, of course, to Israel, but it has full application for us and still works this same way. He says this in Jeremiah 2 and verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this! Be shocked! Be utterly desolate! Declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils: they've forsaken me, the fount of living waters, waters, and have hewed out, have dug out cisterns for themselves—broken cisterns that can hold no water. What Jeremiah is saying here is just: be shocked at this. You should be appalled at this. My people, Israel, guess what? They've turned from me and they've turned to idols and they're worshiping idols, right? And then he gives this crazy example. He says, here's what it's like. It's like instead of drinking fresh, clean, cold water from a mountain stream, you go to a cistern. And a cistern is like a big pit of water. And you know what's in a cistern? Terrible things. Mold, weeds, dirt animal waste, whatever else, it's just there. And instead of drinking from that cold, clean mountain stream, they dip their cup into this disgusting water and they drink that. That's what deciding to choose sin over God is. That's why Jeremiah says it's ridiculous. You should be appalled. Who in their right minds would do that? Jeremiah using a metaphor for idolatry and sin. They exchanged, as Paul says, the truth of God for a lie. They literally worshiped false gods. And this is a question here, church, of which well are we drinking from? Because every time we choose sin, we're going to that stinky cistern. Every single time. Instead of what God has for us in purity, every single time we choose sin, Every single time we choose sin, we are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And sometimes we experience those consequences. Every time we choose to have one more drink that will push us into drunkenness, or that one more helping of dessert that pushes us into gluttony, or that one more pill that we hope is finally going to take the edge off, or that one more time where we just say, I'm going to do anything so that people like me. We submit to fear of man one more time. Or that one more time in sexual immorality or looking at pornography or whatever the thing is, every single one of those times, we choose to to disregard, to exchange the truth of God for the lie of sin. And it could never, ever satisfy. Remember who he's writing to here. He's writing to the church. He's writing to the church at Rome. He knows that Christians are not immune to this. Some of them have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, pure water for filthy water. And they're experiencing God's discipline. They're being given over to sin and all its consequences. So where does this leave us? We will say the big idea this way. Rejecting the truth of God leads to the wrath of God. Rejecting the truth of God leads to the wrath of God. Again, trace Paul's argument. The wrath of God exists. Why? Because people sinfully disregard his existence. They do it by their sin their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth of his existence, right? Paul tells us that God's wrath is seen in two ways. The consequences of disregarding him. Their warped reasoning. Their darkened hearts. Wisdom. It is actually foolish and warped wisdom. And second, we see God's wrath in God's judgment. Refusing God leads to misery. It leads to sinful, unsatisfying misery. And ultimately, rejecting the truth of God leads to the wrath of God and so the obvious question is why why continue in your sin why continue if you are here and again you're an unbeliever I love you thank you so much for coming but I hope you're miserable I hope you're miserable in your sin and I hope you understand that that is how it is supposed to be until you turn and bow the knee to God the almighty creator of the universe I hope you're miserable in your continued efforts to suppress the obvious truth that there is a God, that he exists, and he does have a law, and we've all broken it. And I hope that drives you to your knees in repentance and faith. But Highlands Church, if you're, if you're, if you're a Christian, what does your worldview look like? Hopefully the opposite of this. We all can slip. We all can get spiritual lazy in church. Again, every time we sin, think about it, we make that exchange. We drink the filthy water instead of the clear, cold, crisp, pure water. We make that exchange of, of the truth of God for the lie. And if you smell it coming, sometimes I do this, I will say out loud, that's a lie. That's a lie. You can see it coming. You're on a website and you see something in the bottom that you're like, wow, maybe I should click on that. That's a lie. I should not click on that. Maybe you're feeling wrath that you're starting in yourself, you're feeling anger, you're ready to blow your top, you're ready to react some way to your spouse, that's a lie. That is not the way that God has for me. That is the enemy tempting me to do that. Think about what Jesus came to do. The physical manifestation of God here on earth to fulfill the prophecies, to show us the way to God, and not only that, to pay for our sin And think about this, cosmic treason, right? God's creation turned its back in complete rejection of all common sense and said, nah, you don't exist. Or maybe you do, and I'm just not going to acknowledge it. I'm going to push it down. You have to have way more faith to believe that this world exists without God than you do with it. Jesus on the cross settled the eternal debt that we all have for rejecting our creator against all common sense. This isn't universally applied. In order to do that, we do have to understand, right? We have to have that Paul moment, which we'll get to later in Romans 7, where he's just just at the end of his own rope and says, who will save me from this body of death, wretched man that I am? He gets to that point where he realizes the emptiness of sin, and he says, praise be to God through Jesus Christ. That's where you've got to get to. That's where you've got to turn. And once you have done that, church, you need to stay the course And all around us, we see it in our country, right? I know it seems worse now. I know we look around and read the news, but every generation has said it's way worse than the generation, than their generation, right? Let's keep that in mind, okay? I know it feels like sometimes this whole United States experiment is going to come apart at the seams, right? But it's Romans 1, church. It hasn't changed. It's still Romans 1. It's still sin. We do not need to go into retreat mode, church, We need to go into offensive mode. God is building his church, and Jesus says the gates of hell will not stand against it. We march forward knowing that this, Romans 1, this is how we go on the offensive. We know that this is why the world is the way that it is. And the only hope for that is faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we march forward under that banner to then preach the good news to a world that is trapped in sin and unrighteousness under the wrath of God. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that we have it so plainly in front of us, all around us, the beauty of your creation. When we spend time in creation, Lord, let us be reminded of the God who made creation. As we see the world coming to life again in the spring and everything greening up, May it well up in our hearts and worship and point back to you. And Father, every time that we are tempted to exchange the truth of God for a lie, the lie of sin, we pray that we are bold enough to stand, identify it as a lie, and continue to choose you. And we are so thankful for the power of the Holy Spirit that we have residing within us, Lord, that gives us the power to choose righteousness in the face of the lie of sin. Strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.